This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month's topic, Revenge Attacks, is so intense, I felt like we needed a little palate cleanser before I released the final episode in the series. So I have a little treat for you. This week, I'll share with you a conversation I had with Jake Halpern, journalist, author, and a 2018 Pulitzer Prize winner. Jake is also the host of the true crime podcast, Deep Cover, which is now in its second season. This season, Deep Cover Mobland tells the story of the mob's rule in Chicago in the 1980s, and the rampant corruption in that city's justice system that allowed it to happen. At the center of the story, you'll meet Bob Cooley, a lawyer in bed with the mafia who helped murderers walk free by bribing judges. Inexplicably, he later betrayed these dangerous criminals by going undercover to work with the FBI. It's a fascinating story told over 10 episodes. You can listen to the first seven episodes now or binge all 10 by becoming a member of Pushkin Plus. I'll share information about that at the end of the episode, or you can grab the link in the show notes. I had a great time talking to Jake, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of Deep Cover Mobland. So I have really, really been looking forward to talking to you. First of all, Jake, your body of work is so impressive. I was just like blown away by how much you've done. And I'm thinking, oh, thank you. this guy's probably younger than I am. So, you know, but your work as a journalist for some of my very favorite publications of all time, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly. I mean, those like I'm a subscriber to all of those and I love that. And that alone is impressive enough. But then I start looking at everything that you have. Um, you're also an author of nonfiction books, novels, and even a graphic novel that won a Pulitzer Prize, which I'm so excited about because I love graphic novels. I'm always looking for really good graphic novels. So that's really amazing. And I just wanted to say congratulations on all of that. So, um, Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're welcome. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to spending time on your website. You guys, I'll, I'll link this in the show notes. It's uh, jakehelpern.com because you can get links to a, a bunch of, you know, his work, articles and essays and, and his books and all kinds of stuff. And I started working my way through it this, this week. And I just, I'm really enjoying reading um, all the pieces that you've written. So I can't wait to dig into that. But right now, what we're here for is to talk about your podcast. So another, <laughs> another side thing going on here, or a main thing, I guess, now at this moment, because season two of your podcast, uh, Deep Cover Mobland, uh, just released, I believe, at the end of last month. I've listened to the first about three or four episodes now, and I know that they're being released weekly but you can get all of them at once if you sign up for Pushkin Plus, and that link will be in the show notes too, and I'll tell you guys about that at the end of the show. But this, I really want to get into this story, because the story about Bob Cooley and all of this uh, that went on in the 80s in, in Chicago is all new to me, and I'm sure to my listeners as well. I guess the first thing I w would ask you to do is to give a, the listeners a little synopsis of the story that they're going to hear in season two on uh, Deep Cover. Right. So I think that to start with, you have to understand what Chicago in the 1980s was like. And Chicago in the 1980s and in the 70s was a place where 
corruption was so ever present that if you got a parking ticket or a DUI or worse, you could walk into the courthouse and there would be fixers lining the halls where they would be helping you bribe the judge so that you could get out of trouble. Justice in many ways was just a matter of paying the right person and suffering no consequences. And on top of that, you have the outfit, which is what they call the mob in Chicago. And they have found a way to perfect this and to capitalize maximally on this system of corruption so that its people, even if they are accused of committing murder and there's evidence against them that should put the guy behind bars forever, know the right judge to pay, know the right fixer. And so they can operate with total impunity. And this makes it really hard to, to go after the mob until one day in 1986, um, there's a guy named Gary Shapiro, who's a federal prosecutor who specializes in going after the mob. And he's been trying uh, with great difficulty to do this for some time. It's a Saturday. A guy walks into his office and says, my name is Bob Cooley. I am basically a lawyer for the mob. I know all the secrets and I can help you take them down. And Gary, the prosecutor, has no idea whether to believe this guy, whether he's crazy, whether he is a mole that the mob is sent in to try to you know, get information on the FBI. He just says, it seems too good to be true. I, I thought this guy had a messiah complex, but who am I to say no to the messiah? And so kind of begins the story, which is this cat and mouse game where the feds are trying to figure out whether they think that this guy is for real, what his motivations are, can he be trusted, and is it possible that he could be the secret to kind of undoing the mob and dismantling its system of, of corruption in the courts? That was going to be the other question I asked you was about the whole, the system that was going on in Chicago at the time, because obviously that place plays a big part in the story. And um, I have had people ask, oh, are you going to do any stories that have to do with the mob? And it's like, it's so complex. I don't think I could do it justice. So that was the question that I had. Is this something that you are familiar with, like the politics and the problems that were going on in Chicago at that time um, before putting the story together? Was that something that you had to, like, once you waded into the story, you had to learn all of this, everything that was going on and, and how that played into it. In oh, Chicago. it's totally the latter. I, I knew like nothing. I mean, I joke in the podcast that I watched the untouchables, the, the old Robert De Niro, Kevin Costner film about a hundred times, but that's, that's about it. I mean, I wasn't intending to tell a mob story. And in fact, I generally like my feeling is that it's an area, it's a genre that's so overmined and overdone. It was the opposite. I was kind of reluctant to get into it. And what happened as a matter of fact was I was talking to an FBI agent from Chicago who had done some undercover work himself. And he said, you know, you should really talk to this guy named Bob Cooley, who betrayed the mob back in the 80s and has kind of disappeared since. I said, did he go into witness protection? No, he didn't. He was so paranoid. Basically, he didn't trust witness protection. And, and I was like, well, how am I meant to talk to him? And he said, well, as it turns out I have his phone number. And so I said, okay. And so he arranged for me to call Bob at the place where he's hiding or laying low. And I, I thought we would just talk for like 15 or 20 minutes. And we ended up talking for three hours. And when we got off the phone, it was funny because it was my son's birthday, my 12-year-old's birthday. And I had my wife had the cake downstairs and I knew I had to go down. But I also didn't know if I would ever talk to this guy again. Because, you know, sometimes like 
you'll meet a character like this and they'll talk and then like the phone will just line will disconnect mysteriously and you'll never chat with them again. <laughs> so finally I was like, Bob, I have to go downstairs because there's a birthday party for my kid. Um, but Bob said, you can call me back. And so I started this conversation with him that went on for about a year and what, okay. What drew me in about Bob was that, you know, some mob guys, you would think they would be like, oh yeah, I fixed this murder. I helped this hitman get off. Like, look, like I'm not making any excuses for what I did. It was what it was. I did what I did. Bob is not like that. Bob is deeply convinced that he is fundamentally a moral person. And so he has very complex explanations for everything that he does. For that reason alone, he's a fascinating character. And so I wanted to kind of just keep talking to him about <laughs> why he why he did the bad things that he did and why he then decided that he was going to have this sudden apparent burst of conscience and do a complete about face. And so in many ways, this whole podcast is this character study of this guy. Like, do you believe him? Do you believe his motivations? Um, is he a good person? Is he a rat? Is he a hero? And these are the things that I was trying to figure out as I talked to him and hopefully the listeners along for the ride. I wrote that down. I'm like, Bob Cooley is a real character. <laughs> That's what I wrote right down on my uh, notes here. And I, that was a qu question I was going to ask you because I could tell on some of the, the pieces that you you place on the on the podcast where he's talking that he likes to talk. He likes to tell stories. Yeah. And I was wondering whether any challenges in creating recorded interviews with him or figuring out how to put these interviews into the podcast. Like, how do you make those work? I mean, I think that with a guy like Bob, he is a talker. And like so many of us, he has a mythology about who he is. Like if I, if you ask me who I am, I probably have a well-practiced, you know, whole bit about how I got to where I am, how I met my wife and this and that. But what I find happens with people is that you talk to them long enough and they run out of that stock material. And I talked to Bob for a year. I talked to him for probably hundreds of hours. And what happens is in the course of like talking to someone for that long, these other stories start to come out that don't necessarily kind of fit into the well-crafted curated mythology about why we did certain things about why I'm a hero or why I was motivated by this moments where, you know, he would break down and, and weep literally about some of the you know, harder things that he did or morally questionable things. So to me, my goal was, was just to talk to him continuously. And then when I was done with all that tape, go back and kind of call the bits that struck me as the most important, the most true, et cetera. One of the, one of the parts that I just uh, heard uh, yesterday, I think I was walking my dogs, I was listening to another episode and it's the part where he is in the restaurant with the judge and his daughter, after the judge, you know, basically tells him, this is what you did, you know, this is what you, you did to me, which, I mean, come on, <laughs> he kind of did it to himself. But yeah, I, I get right. the way he was feeling at the time. Then Bob just doesn't even stop at the table on the way, you know, out of the bathroom and just keeps walking. And I thought that's, that shows something there, like something, an inner something that's conflict, even though when you play the portions of what he's saying this, he, like you said, he justifies it. He says bribing somebody isn't illegal, I guess, or something like that. The way he puts it, he kind of mm -hmm. threads the needle of, of the law uh, because he knows how, because, you know, that's what he's been doing. Right. And so just to give listeners a little more context to this particular, because this is probably, I think it is one of the more powerful moments in the podcast. Bob has met 
so Bob was a fixer, right? He was fixing all kinds of kind of smaller cases. And he gets a call from this guy, Pat Marcy, who's basically the mob's political boss, the guy that, that the mob relies upon to kind of work the court systems and corrupt politicians. And Marcy basically says to Bob, I've, I've heard about you. I want your help. I need to fix a murder case in which um, this guy, Harry Alamon, who's a kind of legendary hitman, he's on trial for murder and we need to get him off. And so Bob understands that this is a big deal, but it's also kind of an audition. If he can come through for Pat Marcy on this and come through for the mob on this, it will be, he will approve his worth and kind of have done the impossible. So he, he sets out to look into whether or not he's going to fix the trial. And what he says, his, his test is, is, can I give, when I look into it, is there enough evidence that I'm giving the judge something to hang their hat on? And what that means is, is there enough actual doubt about the evidence here that the judge can plausibly rule not guilty, even with the bribe? And people will think, oh, well, you know, I see why he did that. So Bob looks into this. He says, I knew that Harry, the hitman, was guilty. And Bob, but I thought there was enough doubt that I could fix the trial. But he says he knows he needs a judge who is going to be basically above board, beyond suspicion. And he finds this judge named Frank Wilson, who had had a very good reputation as an honest judge, as an upstanding guy. And Bob basically convinces the judge to take a bribe on this case. He's, Bob is very charming. He, he kind of works it. He, the judge was a bit of a drinker. Bob goes out drinking with him. Um, anyway, the judge takes this bribe. And when the case and starts heating up and the media starts watching the case, and it looks like maybe this hitman is going to be con convicted for the first time in as long as anyone remembers, um, the judge starts getting cold feet, as Bob tells it. And then in the end, and Bob is so nervous, in fact, that the judge is going to rule to convict, right? And even though he's taken the bribe, the day the verdict is coming out, Bob is heading out of town in his car, fleeing town, in anticipation of the judge ruling guilty and Bob being on the hook as having disappointed the mob. As he's driving out of town, the radio crackles and it says, you know, the judge has made his decision not guilty. And Bob turns his car back around and into Chicago because he's the man now. He's fixed this case. He's come through for the mob, but he has to pay off this judge. And this is the scene that, that you were talking about where he goes back to pay this judge off. And as Bob recalls it, um, the judge says to him, you know, you've destroyed me because the papers are are really going after the judge. How could you rule not, not guilty in this case? And I also interviewed Bob's girlfriend who was there at the bar that day. And there's this moment where after he tells the judge, the judge tells him, he takes the money in the bathroom and says, you've destroyed me. The judge walks out and he sits down with Bob's girlfriend at the time. And I interview her too. And she says, he looked terrible. And he said, stay away from that man. He's a bad man. They're talking. And Bob walks out of the bathroom and he sees them talking there and he can't bring himself to sit down with them. He just keeps walking out the door. And, and it is, I don't say what to make of it, but I kind of let listeners kind of think what they will of Bob and the judge at this moment. But whatever you think of it, this is kind of Bob's moment of ascendance as the mob is fixer, because once he's fixed this case, they know, hey, you can fix this case, you can fix anything. Yeah, it was a really dramatic scene because, you know, he's telling you, what did you think would happen if this guy was convicted? He's like, I'm dead. I'm a dead man. 
I mean, yeah, that's what it meant. That's <laughs> how to get the hell out of Chicago because they're going to be coming after me. Like, you know, you said you could do this for us and you didn't. All the way through, you're kind of like, okay, Bob's kind of a blowhard. You know, he's, he says, like you said, a lot of mythology about himself. But then you start to see these little like chinks in the armor. You, you really get the real character. I kind of wondered about that. I wondered if it, he wasn't just going to be that character the whole way through. Like he was never going to crack, right? That's a great a great question. And it's one that I very much wondered myself is that like, am I going to get through like, you know, people are like, you know, onions or whatever. We pull back these layers, but sometimes you just can't pull them back or there's nothing there. All there is, is the exterior. All there is, is the projection of, of, of who they are. Right. And so I didn't know, but I will say, I strongly encourage you to keep listening and make it through to episodes nine and 10, because and I didn't know this was going to be the case until I got there myself. But in those last two episodes, you see a, you see a very different Bob. And two things bring that to bear. I don't want to give away too much. But when Bob, so Bob fixes that case that we talked about with the hitman, right? Um, and then he fixes a bunch of other cases. And then a few years later, he flips. And when he flips, he tells the authorities that he's fixed this famous case with the hitman. And they say to him, all right, let's try to undo this. But there's a problem with undoing it because the, the hitman's defense is like, I can't be in double jeopardy. I've already been declared innocent. The constitution says you can't be put in double jeopardy. The, the question goes all the way up to the US Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court holds with this idea that it's not double jeopardy because he was never in jeopardy in the first place because the evidence is that there was a bribe that was placed. And so there's a trial now, a second trial of the hitman. And without giving away too much, that second trial of the hitman and what follows brings about a reckoning for Bob, like a very powerful, I'm not going to spoil it, but <laughs> it, it won't disappoint you because some very dramatic events un unfold that really kind of shake Bob to his core. And then the last thing is in episode 10, I tell you where Bob is today. And we really look at how this all played out for him years later. And this also kind of spins and turns a lot of the mythology on its head. So if you can, if you last through to the end, this person that you think you know at the beginning, your view on them changes. And I was reminded of that because my wife, she was listening to this whole thing and she was, she, oh, Bob, this and that of the first two. And I said, just wait, just listen. And then if by the end, it's not that he's totally redeemed or anything, but your view does change on him. I'm definitely going to be, you know, stick through to the end because you've got this whole story, you know, the whole mob story angle and all of this and the hitman and, and all this. And that's really interesting, I think, to a lot of listeners who are into these kinds of, of stories. But it's more than that. It's I'm starting to realize it's more of a character study as well and not just him, but other people that are, that are coming in um, into the story as well. So that's you know, especially for people like my listeners, that they really want that. They want to know. They want to know these people. They don't want to just know what happened and what's the resolution of this case. But they want to know who are these people, who are these players. And I think you do that so well in the story. Of course, you know, probably from the years you had of talking to people and 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 writing pieces on all kinds of different things. That really, you're always looking for that little like there's something something else here. You know, like there's something else here yeah. that's important, right? And so I really think that makes it even that much more compelling than even the story, which is, is compelling itself. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly right. And I think especially with, 
with true crime in general, but especially with this mob stuff, it, it falls back on a lot of kind of lazy cliches and, and kind of just like surface treatment of the sensationalism of it all. But I think there, I think that what I had to do here and try to do was to dig into something deeper. And this is why in the story, I talked to a lot of Bob's family members and I, it just, it required just a lot of digging basically and a lot of time with him so that this kind of more nuanced, you know, sense of who he was emerged. Um, and also even just like the judge, the story of the judge, I, I found his daughter and kind of probing into her life. And I don't know, the more people you talk to, the more complex and grayscale it, it became in terms of also of a lot of the moral questions. And I think it's when you get into that grayscale that it starts getting really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I was, I was very surprised about the judge because, uh, you know, the stories that you heard from his daughter saying, you know, this guy was just all about the law and, you know, he was a big Perry Mason, you know, addict and everything was about the law and he loved the law. And then it just seemed so simple that, you know, he offers him, and it didn't seem like that. I mean, 1980, 10,000, how much is that? Like, how much is that worth now? I mean, it's, I guess a lot, but it's not like a lot, a lot, you know what I mean? So. No, it's not enough to think like, why would you compromise yourself for that amount? And I think that's why the judge's daughter to this day still doesn't believe that her, that her dad took the bribe. And I get it because for these very reasons of like, why would you do that? when we get we get further into that towards the end of the podcast and and there's it it comes to a head bob and his relationship with the judge comes to a head in a very dramatic way oh cool okay i'm looking forward to that too then i did want to say something though um that i i noticed that in episode seven that you have a special kind of treat for the listeners and this was where a well-known actor makes an appearance and voices a part in the podcast. So I wanted you to tell them who is the actor and what whose voice is he is he going to be acting in this in this uh, episode? Oh yeah, Michael Imperioli. The uh, you you know him as Christopher from The Sopranos, um, who I just you know like so many people, a huge Sopranos fan, and I just thought Christopher was just one of those great characters, oh, yeah. like you know who who just kind of lives on Christopher. You know <laughs> you you can, and so uh, what happened was we wanted him to do. A voiceover and the reason we wanted it was when bob when bob cooley walks into the fed's offices in 86 and flips he doesn't just offer information what he says what he's willing to do is to wear a wire which you know i don't need to spell this out too much but it's hugely dangerous to wire up against the mob and bob does it for three years um, and he's got many close calls and say what you will again about Bob Cooley. You know, you may listen to the podcast and think him a hero, or you may think him despicable for what he's done in the far past, but say what you will about him. He showed tremendous courage in wearing this wire. And one of the people that he wired up against was a guy named Johnny DiArco Jr., who is a fascinating character. He was, um, he was the son of a mobster. He was a state Senator, uh, a corrupt state senator, as it turned out. And he was also a poet. And so, and he was, I was just so wanted to talk to this guy. Um, and so I found him, I tracked him down and I sent him a note and he basically said no, <laughs> in, in no uncertain terms said no. And I just thought this is a shame because I want to bring him to life. And two things change that help us kind of get to know this guy. Cause Bob 
where we're going with this is that Bob wears a wire. He wires up against this guy, Johnny DiArco, and, and he ends up being one of the main targets. So we get a hold of the wire recordings that Bob made, which is cool. You actually hear Bob in episode seven undercover wearing the wire, incriminating this guy. So you do hear his real voice. But then we found this amazing profile of Johnny DiArco. It was an interview with him from the 80s in the Chicago Tribune. And it's got so many great quotes about why he wanted to be a poet and, and his philosophy on life. And we just thought, so for one of the table reads, I read it and it was fun, but then we thought, let's get someone good like Michael Imperioli to, to read it. And so Michael reads these lines from this old Chicago Tribune interview and totally brings this guy, Johnny DiArco to life. It's all verbatim of what he said, but it was this amazingly uh, gratifying way to hear the voice of someone who actually wouldn't cooperate with us for the podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a cool way to do it. And, you know, if you can get somebody like Michael Imperioli, why not, right? <laughs> why wouldn't you? Totally. You, would. you totally would do that. So, yeah, that is that is so cool. And I am just really liking this. It, it's funny because, like I said, I don't know a lot about any of this um, you know, the mob stuff, the Chicago stuff or whatever. And it's enough, it's enough to really understand the whole story, but it doesn't, you don't get lost in the details because it can be very complex. Right. So, um, yeah. and like, like you said, like I read on, on your website is your main thing is telling stories. You just want to tell the story yeah. in a way that, you know, people can follow, people can, um, you know, enjoy and, and learn something maybe from it. I know I, I definitely am. So, um, I think it's a, a great job. So you did season one as well. Yeah. So season one was a totally different story. Season one is the story of an FBI agent, also from the 80s, but in Detroit. And he goes to make a routine arrest of, he tracks down a fugitive named Toby Anderson and he arrests him. And Toby Anderson is deep in the illegal marijuana trade at the time. And he, and so what happens is the FBI agent, kind of Ned Timmons, convinces the FBI to instead of prosecuting Toby, to use Toby and Ned will go undercover with him and infiltrate where all the marijuana is coming into from, um, because there's rumors that it's coming by plane and by boat and these huge shipments, this kind of massive, kind of like almost like under black market Amazon of marijuana. Um, and so Ned spends the next five years undercover and he works his way up this illegal drug smuggling business all the way to the top. And basically at the top is Manuel Noriega, the, the dictator of Panama. And when this is exposed, it leads to an indictment in Noriega and eventually to a war. So it's kind of just wild story of man walks into a bar to make a routine arrest and, and butterfly effect sets off a chain of events that leads to the invasion of Panama. Wow. Um, and so that's the first season of, of Deep Cover. Yeah, just a little side story, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. No it was uh, it was actually really hard. Like, what do you where do you go with after that? It's such a crazy tale. So it took a while before we settled on Bob's story as the as the kind of successor. I was going to ask that early, but let me let me just end with this. So, what is the journey from journalist and author to podcaster? Then, so was that something that was planned? Was it something that you thought, wow, these stories would be really great in audio form, or did how did that come about? Yeah, it was definitely not planned. You know, I think <laughs> as a lifelong freelancer, I've just always had to hustle to tell stories and kind of whoever would hire me or pay me to tell the stories, I would at least be open to it because you've got to pay the bills and such. Um, 
I had done work radio and I'd done work for This American Life before. And so, you know, This American Life was making basically kind of podcast quality narrative storytelling like well before podcasts existed as a format. So I had done this kind of thing, but I'd done them as one-offs. And so the challenge here was I had done like a one-hour episode of This American Life. And I actually did it with Sarah Koenig, who was the producer who did Serial. So that was that was really interesting and it was a fun story. But the question was, could you do that in a serialized format where you told a single story over 10 episodes like Serial did? And so that was the challenge with, for me personally, with both seasons of this was trying to find a way to create a narrative that maintained its tension throughout. And I had to, there was a steep learning curve. The early you know, drafts of season one were, were not, it wasn't working, you know, but then I kind of slowly figured it out. And now I really like it. I really like it as a storytelling format. Someone once told me, this is years ago, I was talking to an NPR producer and she said, you know, Jake, when you're doing these stories, the best, the best way to approach it is to think about it as if you're just telling one person a story, like you've got a beer in your hand and you're at the bar and it's an, an intimate conversation between two people, like, like this right now between you and me and not think of it as like, and no, you know, with your radio voice. <laughs> right. And so I love, I do think that when the podcasting is done well, there's this intimacy about it, you know, and where it's like one person telling another person a story and it's just, you're at the headphones on and you can be, and so I really do love, I've come to really love the medium. Yeah. I remember, you know, back in the day, like listening to This American Life, and it is, it's really great stories and stuff, but I thought, I could never be that. Like, that's that's just too professional. <laughs> that's too, and it is, It I think the podcasting medium, you can be a little bit more casual. You can, you know, as you're going along telling the story, you maybe think of something like, you know, here's something I'm wondering about, you know, and, you know, you can kind of play yeah. with that as well and put that out there because you know that listeners are kind of taking it that way, that they're like, we're on this journey with you, you know, and we, totally. we're, we're following along. And so the serialized thing works great because they're, they can't wait to get back and, hey, I'm going to go hang out with that dude again and listen to some more stories, right? So it, it really is Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's much more, you're right, so it's more personal and intimate, I think, for listeners, and they really like it. I think this is why the, you know, podcasts that are a series – that they really, um, they really resonate with listeners because they can spend some time with you, you know, on one story and kind totally. of get, get into it. It's, I, th I think it's a fine line too to walk though. Cause on the one hand, you do have to feel like the host is someone who's talking to you and who you trust and who you like, and who occasionally gives you their honest take. And like, especially with a character who, who requires it, pushing back against, they say, wait a minute, but you said this, because you're a stand-in for the listener who wants to know and feel that like the tough questions are being asked. But on the other side, I think that I tried to hold back what I thought. Like I, the way that I approached it was ask the tough questions, go to the uncomfortable places, but then give the listener the benefit of the doubt that they're smart enough to make up their own mind about whether they think about it and don't kind of step on the narrative with your kind of big footprint about saying, this is what it all means, or this is what I think. So it's funny. It's kind of this fine line where you're there and you're present, but you also have enough respect for the listener that you, you say like, they're smart. They're going to, they're going to make up their own mind about this. And I'm going to just try to 
ask the questions that they would want me to ask and then let them make up their own mind. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I always think of it as we, they don't need to be spoon fed at everything, you know, totally. Everybody's going to have their own you know, thoughts and opinions about things or, or how they're going to look at it, their perspective. And so that makes it even, I think that even it makes it even more, you know, they personally get more connected to it because it's like, they're not just telling me what to think, you know, they're giving me up to this point. And then it's like, hmm, you know, this is interesting. What do you think of this person? Do you like this person? Do you not like this person? You know, and you can decide about it. And uh, it's something that they go off and they talk with their friends about, you know, um, totally. What they exactly. Think so yeah, it's, it's, it works out really, really perfect. But the thing is too, with audio is you also have to be careful of the way you're saying things, you know, because you may not be like, trying to tell them what to think but if you have like sarcasm in your voice or like totally you're you know it, it's like so there's always that so i don't know how you uh, feel about the recording process do you do several takes or do you just kind of do one read through because sometimes i'll say something one way i'm like nope that sounded a little bit too judgy and I have to go back and you know yeah it. right and it's hard to ju- it's, i find it easier to kind of judge myself with the written word where i can kind of just look at it and say okay that with speaking, it's it's hard, like your own voice, but that's why it's super helpful. When when we did it, um, we built a little studio in my basement, and I when I go down and record there, I usually have, you know, at least two of the producers on the line, and they'll be like, "Well, that wasn't quite right," or "I think you need a little more skepticism in your voice there, so that the listener understands that you're not totally buying this at face value." Or as you say, you're maybe you're you don't want to laugh at something or seem snarky at a moment where it really, yeah, you do. The the tone is is super important, and you need someone else to tell you like, you know, um, do it again. I've never thought about it. I should have had somebody tell me this. So it was something I just had to learn over time. And, you know, I don't know. Sometimes it, it lands, sometimes it doesn't, but you do the best you can. But yeah, you get feedback from your listeners too. Sometimes it's like, and that that helps, you know, if you're if you're open for constructive criticism, which I always am because I'm sitting here by myself. So I need something, you know, to go off of. It's great. And I, I feel like, you know, you're doing a great job of this. Obviously, you're a great storyteller and it just works Thank so you. well in, in audio and with the interviews and everything. And it's just very, very compelling. So I just want to uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I could listen to these stories all day, to be honest. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Maybe someday I... we'll meet up to some podcast thing or true crime thing and we'll, we'll be able to chat. About Absolutely. I look forward to that. Yeah, that'll be so fun. And I just also want to say I, now you're one of my favorite writers. Like I loved everything <laughs> I've, I've read so far. It's been really, really good. But I think that's the thing. It's like telling the story, but also um, you know, there's this, this, these character studies built in and I, that I'm all about that. Like, I love that. So I think that's, that's really, really well done. And, and, um, I think the listeners are going to love this podcast, if they haven't started it yet. Um, I would, I don't know. I, would you tell them start season two and then go to season one or does it matter? Say it doesn't matter. Yeah. There's standalone seasons. So you could listen to it in any order that you want, um, two or one right now, two is, I think we're up to episode five or six. There, there's one episode each week. So you, you want, you could binge one. They're, they're different stories. Mm-hmm. One is huge in scope. It's in the sense of like guy walks into bar to make an arrest. And at the end we're invading Panama and it's like epic in scope. And season two is this really morally complicated guy who's a fixer for the mob. And it's this intense up close portrait of what makes this guy work. And um, so either one could go, I would say start with season one 
Um, I think by the time this this comes out in a couple of weeks, and so I think it, I think I looked and it'll be up to like episode eight. So yeah, if they wanted to binge, then they might want to do season one first, and then by the time you know they get through that in a week or two. The other thing is you can always join Pushkin Plus and get them all at once. So you know that that's an option as well. So I just want to say thank you again, and I really I really had fun talking to you. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna go finish listening to <laughs> to the episodes. Uh, absolutely, drop me a line. Let me know what you think when you're done with those nine and ten. I will. I will. Thanks so much. Such a pleasure. Once again, I want to thank Jake Helpern for talking true crime with me today. I'm such a fan of his writing, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed it, you will love Deep Cover, where you'll get to hear all the details of his investigation into the story. It's so good. Listen to Deep Cover Mobland on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. To become a member of Pushkin Plus or for more information on Pushkin Plus podcasts, go to pushkin.fm. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with the last chapter in the series, Revenge Attacks, and I hope you'll join me then. Now, as promised, here's a sneak peek of Deep Cover Mobland. Here's the first thing I need to tell you about Robert Cooley. Officially, legally, he no longer exists. He's a ghost. For all intents and purposes, the man named Bob Cooley died decades ago. But in reality, Bob, he's still very much alive. So your neighbors have no idea who you are? Oh, no, certainly not. Does that work out for the best? No, no big thing either way. It's not a big thing either way. It's just that, you know, they wouldn't believe it. If, you know, if I told my story, people wouldn't normally believe it. That's Bob. I've been interviewing him for the past year, mainly by Zoom. But recently, I visited him in person. He lives in this small ranch house at the edge of a vast desert, somewhere in the American Southwest. I can't tell you the name of the town or even the state where he lives, and that's for Bob's own safety. I got more on the floor than I got in here. Bob's now in his late 70s. He has thick glasses and a strong jaw dotted with gray stubble. When we met, he was wearing an old L.A. Dodgers cap and a T-shirt that said, Parental Advisory, Explicit Content, like the labels they used to put on CDs. The house where Bob lives isn't his. He just rents a room in it. I'll show you my room. Beside his bed, the floor is cluttered with vats of V8 vegetable juice and cylinders of Pringles. Sort of looks like he's preparing for a hurricane. Obviously, it's a very small room, but uh, it's got a bed. That's where I sleep. You well, know. So are all your worldly possessions in this room? Oh, yeah, that's it. It wasn't always like this for Bob. Back before he vanished, before he ran for it, Bob lived a very different life. He was a big-time lawyer in Chicago. I used to run around with thousands of dollars in my pocket and pick up everybody's checks and whatever. I would buy the most expensive thing thinking it was the best. Bob drove around in a gleaming convertible, wore a hefty gold chain, partied at the nightclubs on Rush Street, gambled with the bookies, and dined out with the city's judges. But that was then. Today, he survives on Social Security 
and lives in this tiny room at the edge of the desert, basically in hiding. Did you do you have any of your old IDs that you had under your fake names? Oh yeah. Can you, can you show them to me? Bob leads me over to his closet and pulls out a big stack of IDs and credit cards. It looks like what you might find at the Lost and Found at a ballpark. The name varies on each of these, but the face is the same, just a little older each time. Bob points at one ID, an old driver's license. He died about uh, 10 years ago. That, that, that's you. Yeah. That's a different one. Wait, why did he die 10 years ago? Uh, he had a, Apparently, he must have had an unfortunate accident or something. He suddenly disappeared from the face of the earth. Wait, hold on. Here's another photo oh, license. another one. That's a fourth name. Yeah. What happened to this guy? Yeah, he had an accident, too. A lot, of, a lot of these guys had some very bad accidents. And that's how it goes with Bob. He assumes one identity for a few years, pretending to be some guy in some random town. Until Bob feels that itch, like he's not safe. Then that guy dies. The ID gets tossed in this pile, and Bob becomes someone else. And let me assure you, there is a reason for all this paranoia, very good reason, a backstory that explains it all. A saga, really. Back in his heyday, when Bob Cooley was still Bob Cooley, he was the man in Chicago. People around town knew him as a high-priced criminal defense lawyer. But to the city's gangsters, to the mob, he was much more than this. He was their guy, their insurance policy. Sure, he could argue a case well enough, but if need be, he could also fix a case, place the right bribe with just the right judge, and get precisely the right verdict. He was like a get-out-of-jail-free card, only his services weren't free. And Bob, he was more than just a hired hand. He was part of an elite cadre of men. They were backed by the mob, or the Chicago Outfit, as it's known. They basically ran the city of Chicago. Their power base was the First Ward, one of the city's most powerful districts. It was a political machine run by gangsters. They had complete control over the sheriff's department, the attorney general's office, the police department, all the courts. They controlled absolutely everything. So mobsters realized if they did anything, they had absolute protection for it. Bob Cooley did the bidding of the first ward and the outfit for almost a decade. Until one day in the spring of 1986, when he decided to betray them. He just walked into a prosecutor's office and started talking. I regret having walked into that man's office like I did. You know, probably the worst regret of my life, but nothing I can do about that. I jumped off the building. It's a decision that, even now, 35 years later, still baffles people. Why did he do it? People are still arguing about this. Not just that, there are court cases going on right now where they're discussing what Bob did. And how old were you when the shooting which resulted in your incarceration occurred? I was uh, 18 years old. There are guys in prison hoping to get out by invoking Bob's name and the secrets he revealed. Bob's legacy is still shrouded in controversy, but here's one thing that most people can agree on. 
after Bob Cooley flipped, the city of Chicago was never quite the same.